What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Leon Hinged. I'm Dr. Shaw. I'm Dr. Maxfield. And we have a bunch of exciting things to talk about today. This is us just going over what's happened in recent news articles, what's happening in general popularity, and what's happening in our life. So today we're going to be talking about a bunch of different things. We want to start off with the results of a survey that we did on our YouTube channel. And this was to just basically gather what sunscreens you all actually like. We always talk about what we like and what we've tried, um, but there are thousands of you out there with your own opinions. And so we did a poll on the most popular sunscreens amongst our audience. And so we want to share the results of that poll first. Yeah. And it's somewhat validating uh, when we talk about a poll. We talk about what we love and then we find out that a lot of you love the same thing. And I don't know what comes first, like the chicken or the egg. Was it because we loved it that you love it? Or is it because that you loved it we love it? Or is it because it's just good? Everybody loves it. But at the top of the list, at the top of the list, and actually... I kind of feel like it is a surprise, but it's the beauty of Joseon. Oh, how do you say that? It's like Joseon. I think we're ah, saying it wrong. Joseon. Okay. Beauty of Joseon sunscreen. The Relief Rice, Relief Sun Rice and Probiotic Sunscreen. Now, we've talked about this before in our best of sunscreens. And I, For those of you who don't know, this is a Korean sunscreen. And the reason I find it kind of surprising is it's hard to purchase. So, it probably has to do with our viewer demographic for sure. Um, but the textural aspect of this sunscreen is insane. I'm, I'm set to use these. So I'm going to be using these while Dr. Shaw gives his input here. So he's applying it right now for those of you who cannot see him. Totally unnecessary part of the podcast, oh, it's but it's happening for sure right now. So, uh, so that was the number one result. And, you know, it's a great sunscreen. And like Dr. Maxfield said, a little bit surprising because not easy to get. You can't just walk into Walmart, Target, Walgreens and pick this product up. You have to actually go online get it shipped from overseas, get it shipped from Amazon. So just a little bit difficult to acquire. So surprising that it came in as the resounding number one response from our audience. Number two uh, was La Roche-Posay. Now, they didn't say specifically which La Roche-Posay sunscreen because um, we just kind of conglomerated them into one. Now, they have a line called Anthelios, which is maybe like eight, nine, ten different sunscreens there. So mm-hmm. it's hard to know which one everyone likes the most. There's a bunch that I've tried. Uh, Melt and Milk is a great, you know, favorite um it also comes like a big tube if you want to use it on your body as well and then the european versions of la roche posay sunscreens the uv immune uh very popular tinted sunscreen there that i like as well do you have any favorites from la roche posay i do actually i have not tried the european ones and i'm desperate to try them actually at the aad i went to another company isden and they had their european and american line and i said hey can i have some of the european line and they said no it's illegal we can't give it to you and i was like what is this crap like <laughs> it's like a tease um, but yeah, mine is probably from La Roche-Posay. I really do love their tinted mineral anthelios liquid fluid sunscreen. Um, you know, we talk about ISDN. Uh, we love ISDN. And it, it actually, if you want an ISDN dupe, I'm not really sure it's that much cheaper because for the volume, it's probably the same price. But uh, it really has the same quality, like a nice, quick blend. Yeah, I would say for mineral, the ISDN sunscreens do blend better than that particular sunscreen in my opinion are you layering sunscreens on top of each other right now no but even if i was so who cares this i'm not this isn't about perfection this is just about demonstration (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that's definitely certainly a nice sunscreen um and then the third one that came up uh as the most popular amongst our audience was Elta MD as a brand. And again, they have a, a large portfolio of sunscreen, so it's hard to know which one is which. Which, are, which is your favorite Elta MD sunscreen? 
I really do love the, you know what I love? I think I love the UV Restore. That's their mineral sunscreen for whatever reason. Um, I just love their UV Restore. You know, it's funny that was Ben. Mm. So, you know how it's like, you don't know what you have at home. Uh, and sometimes the grass is greener type of situation. <laughs> so, I was using Alta MD UV Restore for about a year. And then I veered away because all these exciting sunscreens were coming out on the market and I felt inclined to test them and try them. And then this week again, uh, my wife was using the Alta MD UV Restore tinted. And I was like, oh, let me just grab this because I don't have my sunscreen right next to me. I put it on. And I'm like, you know what? This sunscreen is phenomenal. Isn't and uh, I veered and I apologize to you, Alta MD UV Restore, for not believing in you. But this is such a great sunscreen and I just love it a lot. So um, UV Restore Tinted um, is probably my favorite product from mm. Alta MD. But uh, everyone else has their own UV clear, whatever, whatever. Yeah, they um, they have a lot of good lineups. Dermatology staple, dermatology staple, and then rounding out the list, uh, rounding out the list, we had Supergoop was uh, close fourth runner up here, um, and their portfolio, of course, blendable, amazing sunscreens. Yeah, that's right. And also on that short list, we had the top ten. We just posted the top ten. There were a lot more, and everyone had a lot of niche ones. But you know, Supergoop, like you said, and then dermatology coming close behind trader joe's spf obviously that's the invisible one that people love and then some other ones here i'm having a hard time reading this my eyes are getting older every day bondi sands shiseido i'm probably butchering that name i've not tried that one skin aqua and then is is didn't actually made the top 10 which perhaps yeah, is our influence but it five percent really uh, around five percent of people choosing is so great products uh blendable products from them as well nice now, sunscreen, summer, this is like the time we're talking about it, but we're going to use this time also to talk about some of the summer skin diseases we're seeing more often. So, we see a lot of things in the office. Like, we actually can tell the transitions in the year by the skin conditions we see. Um, it cycles for sure. So, we're going to talk about some of the things we're seeing in the office. You're probably seeing more and hopefully you don't experience, but you might. And so, we're going to talk about some of these here today. Yeah, so common summer skin diseases. Um, I kind of like these skin diseases, if that's a, a strange thing to say. It's a weird way to say it. <laughs> it's a weird way to say <laughs> it. You, you probably mean. don't like these summer skin diseases, but <laughs> I, I prefer them to the winter skin diseases hmm. um, as hmm. a dermatologist. So, the winter skin diseases, a lot of dry skin conditions, a lot of flaky skin, a little bit harder to treat, but some of the some of the other, the, the summer skin disease is a little bit more fun to diagnose. They have a shorter course and tend to be a little bit easier to treat. So, um, one of the most common ones is something called PMLE, which is polymorphous light eruption. We see oftentimes in the spring, uh, it's like a spring, summer, eru spring eruption. Usually what ends up happening is actually an allergy, almost an allergy to the sun. So, basically what happens is when the sun, uh, certain breakdown products, even UVA, UVB, and some visible light, basically trigger your immune cells to produce a a rash on oftentimes your arms, the backs of your hands, sometimes on the face, not on the face as much, uh, but it can be pretty easy and pretty itchy and pretty um, uncomfortable for patients and distressing. So, have you seen a lot of this this year? I actually have. I've seen two cases this week, in fact. And it's classic because the, the same thing, you know, polymorphous by name means that it can look like anything or it has multiple different appearances which can make it difficult but the history behind it is usually this is something that comes on every year it happens right in like the early spring and then it stops happening it just gets better on its own 
but that but it's always on sun exposed areas and this is classic because it's called hardening so like the more exposure you get it consistently improves throughout the course of the year and that was the story i was getting it happened every year they couldn't figure out what was going on um and it did look fairly prototypical the hardest thing is sometimes you know describing that oh yeah this is what it is um because the pictures don't always line up perfectly but uh yeah i have seen it um you know what's interesting too? We did actually talk about this. We've talked about this a couple times, but one of the few things that's been studied for this condition is actually Polypodium leucomotus. That one of the, it's in HelioCare, it's in the ISDN Sun Supplement. But that's actually something people can do to help minimize recurrences and flares of this condition. You just take it that time of the year, and it might actually help you out. That's certainly true. The other types of sunscreens, because you have to block against visible light as well, you really have to wear a much thicker sunscreen tinted sunscreen if you're going to see any benefit i haven't seen much benefit with sunscreens really at all with Mm. the mle uh the more the better results i see is um, just treating it as it comes up and then throughout the year it gets better as you get more sun exposure so yeah that's that's one that shows up commonly another one is just like a little break off of this and i posted a video about this on instagram and tiktok recently but uh, is that dishydrotic eczema or the itchy bumps that appear on the fingers. Now, sometimes this shows up in the summer, but also sometimes it shows up in the winter. So it's not specific to summer, but uh, sometimes it's referred to as summer summer finger bumps. Um, and so it does show up in the summer for some people when their hands are sweaty or when they're overwashing their hands. So that's another one I've been seeing. And then tinea versicolor is very, very common around this time of the year. So are you seeing a lot? I've seen, I probably saw like nine cases of tinea versicolor last week. Yeah, you're right. So, tinea versicolor, what does this look like? Yes, I'm seeing a ton of it too. And for those of you at home, you actually probably have this. Um, Now, the hardest thing about it is it can mimic other conditions. So, if you look at your skin, if you have tinea versicolor, you'll have patches of, it really is kind of splotchy, but splotchy light areas that just don't tan with the summer or splotchy dark areas. It can also be hyperpigmented. And then if you scratch at it, you get it is a superficial fine flake. Um, really commonly, it's on the people's backs and trunk, which makes it hard to for them to identify. I know I have it. I just live with it and just deal with it. It's not that bad. But um, really, really common. Uh, extremely common. People notice in the summer again because it's from a yeast on our skin. It creates azelaic acid. It stops pigment production. And so the normal skin will tan, but the involved skin will not. So it always appears lighter than the affected area. Well, right. actually, it can go both ways. I said that. but Yeah. And... We'll show you a picture of what this looks like if you're watching on YouTube, but if you're just listening in, I think you did a pretty good description there, but very common on the chest, torso, and uh, we see it all the time. It's, it's relatively easy to treat. Sometimes oral medications are simpler. I had this for a very long, very long time. I, I used to get flares of this all the time when I was younger, and then I started to use like an anti-dandruff shampoo and uh, for, my, for my scalp, and then probably like once a month, I'll use it as like a body wash for my upper body, including my face. And it seems to eliminate a lot of that seborrheic dermatitis that it could occur on the face and in the beard area, but also this tinea versicolor that occurred on my chest and back. And so I haven't had a flare in probably five years now since I started doing Mm -hmm. that. So pretty good way to prevent flares of this. Then the next thing we see is more nature related. So if you're like Dr. Maxfield and you like to go outside and people tend to like that, uh, we start to see a lot of things like bug bites. So, you know, whether it be mosquito bites where mosquitoes love both of us right i mean i don't know mosquitoes i cannot walk outside at night without getting chewed up by mosquitoes see we see a lot of mosquito bites uh we also see a lot of like fire ant bites as well um especially around the ankles and uh a lot of other bed bug 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 
bug bites, like bed bug bites um, <laughs> that uh, occur when people are traveling and they stay in hotels that have bed bugs. Yeah, they uh, there's very distinct things about these things. So, like, if you're wondering what kind of bug bite you have, we can actually be here. So, the uh, fire ant bites they give little pustules around the ankles. Classic, prototypical, classic. Almost no other bug does it. Bed bugs have this like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's like three little red bumps sequentially. Uh, they I don't know why they just take three bites and move on. And then uh, you know the rest of the bug bites they're less distinct. I will say though, I will say. So we I, we moved to the south. I still live in the south. The bugs here are insane. There are things I've never heard of. There's no CMs. There are um, chiggers. There are um, midge flies. There are, you are familiar sand flies. with jiggers. Jiggers. Yeah. What is? Isn't that a baby flea? Yeah, it's a flea that causes you to get. It's like um, tongueiasis. <laughs> Oh, this is right. It's the tongiasis flea dropping the tropical medicine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, those are pretty gnarly videos. You don't want to watch a tongiasis extraction at any point <laughs> in your life. Those were showing well, up all you... over my TikTok feed and uh, <laughs> pretty terrifying. How... So, okay. Beyond the tongiasis extraction, how do you like to treat bug bites? How do you like to go after these? So, I mean, you can, of course, try to prevent them. Um, now there are all kinds of different essential oils that people will apply to their skin to detract against these. Now, those don't nearly have as much efficacy as something like DEET does, but of course, a lot of people are worried about DEET. I'm not personally worried about DEET. Um, and so I will use a DEET based anti-bug repellent, um, in order to prevent these. And oh, I've tried all this other stuff, these candles and everything. I haven't seen any like tremendous benefits. I mean, I'm the, like, like mosquitoes yeah. love me. So without a bug spray with DEET, I just don't have any, any results. Yeah. I'm the same way. I've tried it all. I have devices. I have the oils. I have it all. Uh, and it's really disappointing because, you know, actually, I'm also not worried about DEET in the slightest. If you say if used appropriately, the safety is like a really good track record. And so it works exceptionally well, not only for mosquitoes, but also the, all of the other bugs we mentioned as well. Ticks, too. I posted a video about bug spray once and um, my biggest complaint with DEET is the tackiness of it. You just feel it on your skin. It just sticks to your skin. It feels awful. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, a lot of people had a lot of tidbits. That were helpful, but uh, honestly, I do think but DEET seems to be inconsistent to me. Yeah, there's, I mean, what's in off spray? Because off works decently well for me. Well, I thought it was DEET. I think it is DEET, <laughs> right? I just want to make sure. Yeah, yeah, it's a DEET mosquito repellent. That's why it works so well. Um, and they have different ones that are like that, that, that dry, that like don't have that tackiness. So I think you yeah. just need to try different ones, I suppose, maybe. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's what I would do. And then, and then when you're already bitten and chewed up, um, yeah. and this will be our transition into uh, probably the last most common thing that we see here, which is just rashes from plants. So poison sumac and poison oak and poison ivy, super common around this time of year. So this is like a very itchy rash that unlike the fire ant bites, which show up as pustules, these show up as vesicles, which are fluid filled blisters. They're super itchy. They're usually in like a linear pattern just because of the way the plant brushes up against you. But it can be more widespread, especially if you're out like cutting grass and you cut a plant and then it spills all those arushial oils all over you. And then you can kind of get it a little bit more widespread. 
And this causes a type four sensitivity reaction. So it lasts much longer than a lot of other type of allergic reactions and also comes on a little bit slower. So it's not like you like, like a bug bite, you get the immediate reaction, right? So you'll feel itchy right away versus something like a plant-based allergic reaction. You're going to feel that reaction maybe 48 hours afterwards, sometimes a week afterwards. And so a lot of times it's difficult to trace the rash back to when it initially, initially came in contact with that plant. And so that becomes difficult for patients to say, hey, like, no, I was actually because you were probably outside and now you're just getting the rash later on. Yeah, that's so important for that, for counseling. It's like a very slow onset hypersensitivity reaction, slow onset allergy, and it's a slow offset. One thing that shocked me once, like when I started training in dermatology is how many people had severe eczematous poison ivy rashes, like not just where they got it, but their whole body, their whole immune system is hyperactive and they just break out in this eczematous rash while having poison ivy. And that can last for a month. Like even if you just simply up to date this, which is like in the new physician's desk reference, you'll see that it commonly lasts for like three to four weeks. And that's why when treating it, one of the most common mistreatments is to treat it for too short a period. So a lot of people will give steroids or something by mouth for about a week. And then it flares right back up and people are like, well, why I'm shocked, but it really shouldn't be because it's very useful like that. You know, it's a allergy is a pet peeve of mine because people use that word indiscriminately. They're just like, oh, I'm allergic to like, whatever, everything. Like I'm allergic to steroids. I'm allergic to epinephrine. I'm allergic to what? Because it makes you feel bad or it has an adverse event. But aller allergies are very nuanced. You have immediate ones. You have delayed ones. There's four types we always talk about, but I'm obsessed with allergies. I'm obsessed with the nuance of allergies. And I probably spend too long in the room with patients when I talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no, a hundred percent. And that's another one. You know, I had a patient actually just last week that said I'm allergic to epinephrine mm -hmm. because it makes my heart beat faster that's what epinephrine does, you know? And right. so I think that that's, you know, so when someone says that, I, I think it's responsibility of the provider who initially makes that diagnosis of quote unquote epinephrine allergy to tell the patient like this is not an allergy, it's an expected outcome with this medication because then the patient always tells everybody they're allergic to epinephrine and then you you may need epinephrine one day, right? And so yeah, that's a huge important distinction. Yeah, so that that can be challenging. And so I think the education piece is kind of falls on the doctor to to say, hey, you know, that's not an allergy; that's an expected consequence of, of a certain medication. But yeah, so yeah, so uh, just to go back, like the treatment for bug bites and for poison ivy to stop that immediate itchy reaction that occurs oftentimes is just going to be using a topical anti-inflammatory like a steroid or an oral steroid um, to help with the itch until the rash subsides. Okay, wait, here's my, I'm, I've came up with this list. This is this is your bug bite remedy. This is it. Steps A Ooh. through D. Uh, okay. I'll probably make another video about this as a standalone. Because, so here it is. You get a bug bite immediately. I'd go for ice. It's cold, it's soothing, it's vasoconstrictive, it has an immediate benefit that even something like steroids won't. So ice. After ice, after you've cooled it down, not directly on the skin, maybe for 30 minutes, if you've got that much time, I'd probably go to calamine lotion. I've subjectively, anecdotally found that to be pretty relieving and quicker than again, even a steroid. And then after you've used the calamine lotion, after you have that set, perhaps that's when you transition to a topical steroid. And again, we're talking about self short limited, self limited condition, and that's a sort self limited treatment. And that was only three steps, but I guess uh, there, there it is. One, two, three. <laughs> so why not, you know, just as we, as we suss out the remedy for bug bites and itchy rashes, why not ice followed by steroid 
followed by calamine lotion so that the steroid can then kick in while the calamine lotion is mm. on top of the steroid. Because you couldn't Ooh. put a steroid on top of calamine lotion because that creates like a thick paste. So I would say steroid then calamine. What do you think? It's been Debate improved me. upon. There it is. There we go. Dr. Lee. ultimate three-step. <laughs> the ultimate three-step. <laughs> or you could go with the uh, Dr. Casal method and it's the uh, bug bite, then use the suck it tool. Oh, and God. It's the, the bug bite thing. It sucks it out. It's like this little mechanical. It gives you a hickey. It's like a hickey maker. So, that's his number. That'd be his number one. Number Dr. One Casal, the type of dude to have his mom kiss his boo-boos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely sending that to him. Anyway, so <laughs> All right. So, moving on. Those are the common things. Anything else we're seeing in the summer? Uh rosacea flares, I guess, is something else we don't talk about a whole lot. Redness rosacea is actually a condition flared by the sun, which is a tough thing because vascular blood vessel dilation is a common endpoint for both rosacea and sun damage. So it's hard to distinguish, but I'm actually seeing a ton of rosacea flares right now. There's actually a new product. Actually, you know how we talk about the doctor jart? So there's a hack. It's mm-hmm. a red, 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 oh, it's a green sunscreen. One's a serum, one's like a really thick casty paste. Um, there's a new brand. Uh, they have, it's Lumen, L-U-M. Uh, cast a wide net. I actually just tried it out this morning and it's like a, a really hyper-masculine men's line, I think. It's very Ooh. interesting. But the one thing they avoid, it's not like minty. It's not fragrant. And they have this instant redness corrector. Check this thing out. It's, I think it's fragrance-free. I want to see it, it not, live. I'm sorry. I want to see a lot. Ooh, little green tint to it. Okay. Yeah, very green. It's a lot. So, it's kind of thick like the cream Dr. Jarts. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this is a sunscreen though. Uh, but, uh, Again, it, it's soothing. It's like a moisturizer. It masks uh, and it's not scented. That's like the one knock on the Dr. Jart stuff. It seems heavily scented. Heavily scented. irritating. You know what I mean? Yeah, it so. looks terrible. Um, <laughs> we'll give you some time to blend that in while we move into our next topic. So, next topic, a little bit more serious. Um, and this is related to Khloe Kardashian's melanoma diagnosis. So, Khloe Kardashian was recently diagnosed with melanoma. Now, I don't know how deep this was. I don't know if it was a superficial melanoma. I don't know if it's something that we call melanoma in situ where it's just restricted to that very top layer of the skin. I don't know if it was just an abnormal mole or I don't know if it was a full-blown invasive melanoma that had invaded beyond the epidermis. Um, But she talks about this on the newest season of the Kardashians, which I appreciate because it, it spreads awareness to people about these different types of conditions that are out there and things that can maybe raise some awareness. Maybe you're at home and you're like, oh, you're not watching dermatology content, but you're watching the Kardashians and you say, hey, you know what? I do have an abnormal mole as well. And I should probably get that checked out because Chloe had a melanoma. And so I appreciate that she shared this story. But anyway, what ended up happening was that she had this uh, pimple-like lesion. Her sister tried to pop it. It didn't go away. It stuck around for several months afterwards. She decided to go in to see a dermatologist to have it biopsied. It was biopsied. I think she got a second opinion as well. They ended up calling it a melanoma. And then she had a plastic surgeon excise that melanoma and she ended up with a four centimeter excision on the face. Um, with maybe 10, 12 stitches on top. And I think right now is in the healing process. So first, let's talk about melanomas. And then let's talk about the treatment of melanomas. And then maybe a little bit about how to minimize the scars if you do end up in this situation. 
Yeah, that's such a huge topic. I mean, so melanoma of the common skin cancers definitely has the highest risk of spreading throughout the body, like meaning that it metastasizes. It actually, I think of all skin, all cancers in general takes away the most life years, meaning that it affects younger individuals and it kills them earlier. Melanomas are like, they have, they're very scary. Uh, the most important thing is depth. And like Dr. Shaw said, we don't know how deep hers was. Um, and hopefully it was early because it makes a world of difference. The most common causes is, of course, sun exposure. Unfortunately, that's a huge cause. It just causes mutations in the DNA. And then randomly, one of those mutations lands on a melanoma gene, which we've identified many of them. And the result of that is a melanoma. There's also a pretty big genetic component, but those two combined um, can result in a melanoma. Right. And um, by the way, that looked terrible. So I'm glad that yeah, you are well. now washing that <laughs> off. But I think maybe you should have used a little bit less and patted it in a little bit better. Um, but, uh, but moving on. So, yeah. So, so melanoma, um, one of the more aggressive forms of skin cancer, catching it early is super important. So let's just talk about quickly how to identify, I won't belabor this too much, but ABCDE still hold up pretty strong, which is asymmetry, which means that it's just not, not symmetric. It doesn't fold over on top of itself. B would be border irregularity, which means that like it's spiky. Um, it's just the borders are regular, not smooth. C would be the color if it has multiple colors. D would be diameter, anything bigger than six millimeters or a pencil eraser. Um, and on the fingernail, three millimeters. And then E would be anything that's evolving or changing. The last thing that I'd like to introduce into this is that ugly duckling sign, because I think it's one of the more mm -hmm. reliable predictors for people at home. So the ugly duckling sign is probably one of the most reliable predictors of melanoma skin cancer in all populations. And essentially what it is, is the mole that just doesn't look like the rest, right? You have a mole, you all have a bunch of moles on the body. If you look at your whole body, you take a survey of it, you have almost a signature mole. Your body tends to produce melanin in clumps or mel uh, sorry, melanocytes in clumps and look a certain type of way. And your type of signature mole is going to look different than my type of signature mole. But when you take a survey of your body, you do have a lot of people have a mole that just doesn't look like the rest of the moles. And that is what we call the ugly duckling sign. And that is a very reliable predictor of what an abnormal mole would look like in you and the ones that look that are worth getting biopsied. And so if you're listening to this, um, if you're a fan of the Kardashians, or even if you're not a fan of the Kardashians, if you have a mole that you think looks abnormal compared to the rest of your moles, something that's just not healing, something that's bleeding, something that's irregular, or something that everyone you know and love, your mom, your dad, your spouse is telling you, hey, you should probably get that thing checked out and you're just kind of waving it off and saying, no, you know, it's probably going to be fine. That is probably a more reliable predictor than anything else we can be telling you to look for because you don't have a trained eye. You don't look at these every day, but you knowing that something looks abnormal is something mm -hmm. that's a gestalt that you know and everyone around you knows. And that is something that you should certainly have checked out. So don't wait. Don't hesitate. If you have something that looks abnormal, go have it checked out today, tomorrow, but don't push it off any further. Yeah, absolutely. I Anecdotally, I've had a couple patients recently, barbers uh, have caught... I mean, they were big melanomas. These were not small, um, but the barber has saved their life. And additionally, um, I've every year, I'd say five spouses, usually the wives, <laughs> but the uh, five spouses, they'll send their significant other into the office and it's a melanoma. Like, And uh, so, yeah, definitely listen to the feedback you're getting from people close to you. I uh, can't emphasize that enough. These like 
the, the if it's early, if it's advanced, it makes a world of difference. Um, someone in your life will probably save your life. Right. Okay. So now you've you've decided, okay, I'm going to go in, I'm going to get this spot biopsied. What happens? So we'll tell you a little bit about what happens behind the scenes so you know what to expect. So you come into my office, you see me, you say, hey, I have this mole. It just doesn't look like the rest of my moles. I'm going to do a survey and say, hey, does this look like it's worth having a biopsy or is this just a benign lesion? We see benign lesions all the time. And one of my favorite things to do is tell patients, hey, that thing you were worried about, you don't have to worry about it. But if it is something that looks abnormal to me, then I will biopsy it. What does a biopsy mean? It does not mean that we completely remove the lesion. It means that we just take a sample of the lesion to send to the lab to look underneath the microscope to give us more details about that lesion than what we can see with the eyes. So how do we do this? We usually numb the skin with a lidocaine. Once we numb the skin with lidocaine, we shave the area flat. Uh, we put it in a little sample bottle. We send it off to the lab. We give you a little Band-Aid and we send you on your way. So I always say it's just like you scraped yourself. We send it off to the lab. Then within a week or two, we get the results of that biopsy and they tell us what they saw underneath the microscope. Now, if they say this is a completely benign mole or nothing to worry about, then you're done. Now, then they may tell you, hey, this is a abnormal mole, or they may tell you that this is not just an abnormal mole, but it's already a skin cancer. It's a melanoma. In which case, depending on what the results of that biopsy will determine what the next stages are. Sometimes we just observe. Sometimes we have to do a small excision. Sometimes we have to do a big excision. And sometimes we even have to do an excision of lymph nodes or imaging because it's gone so deep at this point that we need to make sure it hasn't spread to other parts of the body. Yeah, I mean, that's really the whole spectrum of working this up. It, but it all depends, again, on how early you catch it. And that's such an important predictor. And best case scenario, you know, you could just be able to cut it out in the office. You're done you know, if it has spread to the lymph nodes. Thankfully, actually treatments have evolved in a fairly significant way recently where you can do immunotherapy, um, which is being used in a lot of different types of advanced cancers in general, um, can have exceptional, albeit rare, but exceptional, extraordinary, miraculous outcomes. So that's a pretty cool thing. Right. And um, surgery-wise, afterwards, it's so difficult to predict. And we always say this to say, hey, you're not going to have a scar. A lot of people say that like they come in and they yeah. say, well, you know, if I go to a plastic surgeon or I go to see a derm or a Mohs surgeon, like is my outcome going to be different? Now, if somebody is highly skilled and they've done a bunch of these, they can produce a really good outcome if they're skilled at this. It doesn't matter like necessarily if they're a derm or a plastic surgeon. Um, Derms do this every day, but plastic surgeons do a lot of skin surgeries as well. So I don't think that it's necessarily like a skill thing. Um, but the ultimate thing is that we don't know how your body is going to work, right? So I could do the perfect excision and close you perfectly. And the edges look amazing when you leave. <laughs> Doesn't look like there's any, uh, you know, then you go home and you take perfect care of it. You're putting Vaseline on it two times a day. You're cooping it up. You're keeping it out of the sun. But despite that, your body decides to produce a lot of different types of growth hormones and, um, you know, things that stimulate fibroblast production. You end up with a big, you know, uh, uh, hypertrophic or keloidal scar. That's something that I can't predict as the derm going into this. And so, you know, this is something where if any derm or plastic surgeon tells you that you will be left without a scar, there's no way that we can guarantee that because how your body decides to heal is completely out of our control. Now, we do everything to minimize the scarring, but once you go home and your body decides to do its thing, we have no control over that. But we can treat the scars once they form. So, just keep that in mind. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. Uh, you know, I mean, looking at actually Khloe Kardashian's scar here, 
the tag on this is Chloe Kardashian shows off huge facial scars. She reveals like what life threatening cancer. This scar is tiny. For a melan this melanoma must have been small as can be. Or they did the, the small length of this. On it. Or that yeah, they took small mark. I'm sure they well, who knows what they did, but you know, this scar looks like four centimeters. That's a small that's a small melanoma scar because with a melanoma, you're you're at least taking half a centimeter on each side, up to one centimeter on each side. And then you may be multiplying that by three to get a flat line where you're going along the length of the scar. So um, fortunately, this seems to have been small. The scar is tiny for melanoma scar relatively. So hopefully that heals well for her. And with that, we'll kind of talk about some tips about how to heal this. It's not, I guess the first thing to start with would just be not letting it dry out. So after you've had it treated, the old adage, we hear it all the time. I still hear doctors say this all the time too, is just let it dry out like let the air let let it breathe give it give it air and i can tell you unequivocally that is the worst thing you can do for a healing wound it's night and day black and white difference between someone who's kept it covered and goopy with vaseline or an antibiotic versus someone who's let it breathe it's it's like an atrocious difference it's it's i can't believe that anecdote was ever perpetuated but uh definitely keep it covered keep it moist preferably with vaseline for the first couple of weeks of healing hundred percent. And then after that stage, um, you can switch to silicone bandages. Um, I think that those give the best result after, and then you wait a few months, see how the scar healed. If you're not happy with it, if there's some redness, we can use a laser that targets redness. If it's just more raised or more flat, we can use like lasers that can treat those, but you really don't know how a scar has finally healed until, until about a year. So definitely give it some time and then we can definitely have some treatments to minimize the appearance of scars. And so that's pretty much how to take care of it. I think the best tip is what Dr. Maxfield said is that just keeping it gooped up is going to make a massive difference compared to anything else that you can do. So now on to our last topic of the podcast today. We are going to be talking about something maybe a little bit more boring. I don't know how much you all can, maybe you can comment about what you care about the business of skincare, but it's something that's sort of fascinating to me. So I, we always kind of bring in segments like this. Um, and this is coming out of Glossy, um, a magazine which does a lot of good beauty content. And they're talking about L'Oreal investing in the biotech firm known as Debut. Um, so L'Oreal is a skincare conglomerate or a beauty conglomerate, um, and they invested in a new biotech firm as part of their Series B fundraising called Debut. And Debut, um, to give you a little bit of background on Debut, which I actually didn't heard about them until this article came out, but um, basically what they do is they they basically engineer new skincare ingredients from the ground up. So they have this idea of an ingredient they want to create. They create this synthetic ingredient. And basically what the founders are saying of this company is that all these ingredients that we're using today, retinol, niacinamide, vitamin C, in five years, um, their thesis is that based on the ingredients that they are creating from the ground up, that all of these ingredients that we talk about today will become obsolete uh, because they're going to create new ingredients that are going to be better, more efficacious, and with better clinical studies um, that show that you know these things actually work. And so... What do you think about this? So I think L'Oreal is actually the perfect brand to do this. I think they're perfect brand to buy it for two reasons. One of which is they're huge, right? Like they, they have the money and the capacity to make something substantial out of innovation. Um, they have the influence, they've got the network. But the other side of it too, this isn't actually the first, I don't know, I don't know if you noticed this, but L'Oreal has some uh, products and ingredients that most other people aren't using. 
Like they have a, they have a hair serum with Aminexil. I've talked about that. I did a video with that. They're not actually using it for hair growth, even though it's been studied in that way. Um, it was showed it was shown to be fa- inferior to minoxidil, but still had an effect in improving hair growth with hair loss. And then they also had one. I think it's like steoxidamine or something like that. I have to look. It's in my shop, my shelf for hair loss. They also ha- it's, I don't think it's available in the U.S., but they do have another product for hair growth. It, it's a data-backed ingredient, but these are things that no one really, el- no one else is really using. And so I feel like this is actually an in character for them to invest in innovation. And we know that behind the scenes, they've developed the skin content, skin-like substance that they're doing research to avoid animal testing as well. So they've got the means. It's in line with their vision. I, I kind of like the acquisition. I'm interested to see where it goes. Yeah. Um, so I, it's not exactly an acquisition. I mean, I guess they, nah. their venture was well, similar. I mean, similar in the sense that their venture arm called bold. So they have like an arm that just is investments and like up and coming things. But a lot of times when a company like bold, so Unilever does this too. Unilever ventures, bold ventures. They, what they do is they invest in like this stage. And then if it goes really well, then they acquire it. Mm. So it's usually like, so they're kind of like pre, pre-acquisition probably I would say, but they're, they're investing like more capital to give them the capital to maybe take it to the next stage. And then if it continues to make sense, but I agree with you, it makes sense for L'Oreal. L'Oreal is one of the biggest beauty conglomerates in the world. If they're able to create ingredients that are proprietary and patented and L'Oreal has the IP to those in- ingredients that could be a massive boon for L'Oreal as a company. But I think this setup, this idea of like a company producing just the actives and then selling or licensing those actives to other companies is a really interesting setup. And we see this actually happening quite frequently and we don't even really pay attention mm-hmm. to the fact that this is happening in the beauty of, of the business of beauty. Um, we saw this with Matrix L3000. So Matrix L3000 is a peptide and two peptides. Um, they come together to create Matrix L3000. It was created by a company called Sederma. And Sederma then licenses Matrix L3000, um, the ingredient to several other skincare brands to then use in their products. And so when you see Matrix L3000, they did the studies to show that it's so beneficial to the skin. Um, you know, thickens the skin, it has anti-aging properties and does all this stuff. And then they say, okay, we did all the clinical studies. We formulated this ingredient. We created this proprietary peptide. We own it and we are going to license it to you. And so that's their business model. And actually that's what Biosense does. A lot of people don't realize that Biosense synthetically created their squalane, which is a phenomenal squalane. I mean, I just, as sugarcane derived squalane, bioengineered, phenomenal ingredient, um, they license that squalane to hundreds of skincare brands. So when you see squalane in a skincare product, a lot of times that's coming from Biosance because Biosance sells their squalane to other brands. And in fact, they actually sold a lot of their ingredient portfolio to another company. So Biosance or Amaris, the company that owns Biosance, sold the Biosance's portfolio of ingredients to another company recently. So I don't know what's going on there and why they decided to do that. I don't know if it was like a good acquisition or not, but the idea of companies just creating the actives and not even being skincare brands themselves and then selling those actives to other companies, a very interesting business model. And if you can get something to work, like really well, Bakuchiol is another one that did this. So mm-hmm. Bakuchiol, Matrix Cell 3000, if you have success with an ingredient like that, your impact and reach can be far beyond just creating a single brand by yourself because you can find your way into many, many other products. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it is very, very interesting. I think it actually moves the skincare industry, skincare industry in in the skincare world a lot more than you'd realize because all of a sudden this novel ingredient becomes 
more widely accessible. And it's not like my Bakuchiol versus yours or my squalling versus yours. It's like, it's just squalling. And it actually improves the quality of cro- products across the board if people are using it. So I'm a huge fan of that. Interesting, it's in the hair supplements too. When we mentioned this, I was like, oh yeah, Amino Amar, Synergen Complex. These are two complexes, kind of like the Matrix Wolf 3000, just in a different setting where they have the formulation of a combination of ingredients that's been shown to be effective. And then you'll have something like Nutrifoil. I think they have the Synergen Complex in there, maybe the Amino Amar, I don't remember. But they'll use that whole formulation, just like someone incorporate Matrix Wolf 2000, and then come alongside that with some other ingredients too. So yeah, it's probably quite a bit more broad reaching than we realize. It probably expands well beyond skincare and its regular practice. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's fascinating. I think it's an interesting business model. I think it makes a lot of sense for L'Oreal and I'm excited to see what type of ingredients come out of this. And if they're right, right? If we say like, okay, if we made retinol obsolete in five years because we bioengineered something that was better, more effective, less irritating, I think that the way that we look at skincare today would be totally different if that if that thesis plays out now we know a lot of these theses don't play out so so i'm just i'm just interested to see but that would be very exciting for us and that would actually make our content a lot more interesting right so if we could really get these new these new ingredients out on the market and be able to try them sample them and see good results in our patients then skin could look very different five years from now yeah yeah it's, uh next frontier is probably honestly i think the next frontier is actually hair color and then continued hair loss Uh, I think there's a lot of innovation, a lot of headlines, at least, coming out in those fronts. So I'm excited. Yeah, hair hair is an untapped field. And I think there's a lot of money and potential upside in it. You know, you see with the Olaplex IPO, you see the success of K18. I think a lot of other people are going to want to get into that space. And uh, it should be Mm -hmm. interesting to see who enters that space and if there are things that are better, right, that that enter. Because I do think it's a grossly neglected space right now and hopefully we get to see some real innovation in it and that'll be helpful for me i'm in the shedding phase of my oral minoxidil by the way so oh. in case anyone's wondering it's <laughs> been a painful couple of weeks for me just every day i run my hands through my hair and i'm like uh this is killing me but i know Takes i just gotta neutrophil. stick it out i just gotta stick it <laughs> would you take okay we actually have all right so i i'm gonna just love you this out here uh neutrophil I was extremely skeptical of them, really, to like a negative critical point. I and then researched it and I'm on board with it. And like, man, should I do a sponsored video with them? I do I genuinely believe in their product. We've just roasted supplements so heavily. I'm like, now nah, we can't do it. It's actually really tough, but I, I, I actually know. do really much. I don't know. Work. It's a little pricey. Um, it is. Maybe if there was, a, yeah, I mean, I, I, if you want to do, I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I would, <laughs> just, I just, I don't know. I'm a little down on supplements here. for the most part, but. You know, mm-hmm. Isden has a hair supplement. Um, obviously, Nutrafol is the leader in the space. I'd think about it, you know, but I uh, I would want to like, I don't know. So expensive. I know. So expensive. And so many I've people will do it. i it so thoroughly. I'm like, yeah, the studies I just, I just look good. good yeah. It. I mean, yeah, that's up to you. I mean, you, I know, you just... as the, uh, as the um, discretioner of, what comes in right because we get so many offers right and how do you vet the offers right you're mm-hmm. like well no 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 and then you're like eh, maybe you know is this really gonna be helpful to people so i think ultimately like do you have to ask yourself what i always do and i and i flip this back onto you if your dad asked you i'm recommending it i'm recommending then, it so if you're office, recommending man. it to your dad then yes like of course do a sponsored post then that's e- so yeah, easy right because isn't that easy how easy is yeah, that exactly that's such an easy recommendation like if my mom called me and said, hey, do you want to use this thing on on your face? Do you like these uh, $2,000, you know, La Mer product? I'm like, no, mom. 
you know, it's so easy. Like, you know, then if LaMare reaches out and they say, hey, do you want to? I'm like, no, you know, because my mom, I, it's so it's such an easy, like, I feel like it's such an easy way to determine like what you would want to do. So, if you're like, oh, Yo, my, I would recommend Nutrafol to my dad, then, um, then yeah, like, of course, recommend it to the audience. You know, but here's easy. what I see playing out. And, you know, who knows, this may actually actually play out in real life. And it's going to be funny if it does, is I do, if I do the Nutrafol thing, because I believe in it, I genuinely do. I think it'll be helpful for people. And then like, someone duets that and then right behind that is us in our youtube comments saying yeah people who support supplements are quacks if they're getting paid for it. i might even just do that myself just to get ahead of it <laughs> yeah i mean i think i think as long as you call that out i mean and say hey you know like blah blah yeah, yeah i think that sometimes your own words can come back to bite you but uh, but we evolve as humans but yeah no yeah, i just do. I, I tend to stay, stay away from supplements just because they're like unregulated claims. But companies like Nutrafol have been around for like a really long time. So it's like, you know, it's like a little bit more trustworthy. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's a little, if you get a little gray area there. So, um, but yeah, if you recommend your dad, it's easy. You say yes. It is. Um, so anyway, um, thank you all so much for tuning in. Doctorly Unhinged, new episodes every week. We don't know whether our release date will be on Tuesdays or Wednesdays or Thursdays going forward. We're trying to figure out what's best for our workflow, but we're back to weekly episodes, season two. Let us know what you want to see next. Um, you know, you really inform what we create. So thank you all so much for tuning in. Please leave a review if you're on Spotify or Apple and we'll see you in the next one. Yeah, we appreciate you always. Have a wonderful week.